This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Horns of Odin. Horns of Odin is a family-run company which specialises in drinking horns and horn mugs. Every horn is sanded, polished and carved right here in our own workshop. And we line each one with a full-grade beeswax so you get a nice clean taste every time. We also have a selection of copper and brass jewellery, leatherwork and our own blacksmith, all handmade right here in the UK. We're giving an exclusive discount to listeners of the podcast. So all you've got to do is simply add the code HORNS10 now that's Horns10 to grab 10% off your entire order at checkout. So why not head over to the website www.hornsvoden.com to see the full collection of our products. We also recently hit 30,000 Instagram followers and we'll be holding a huge raffle really soon. We've had tons of amazing prizes donated and every single penny that we raise will be donated to charity. So if you just pop over to Instagram and follow us at hornsvoden.com, as soon as the charity goes live, we'll let you all know. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Naughty Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the Company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello. And today we've got a, a very special guest. He's returning for his second appearance. Uh, that's Sigur Buddy. Hello. So how are you doing, man? I'm all right. Good. Um, how are things? What have you been up to since we last since we last spoke? Uh, just uh, I've been traveling a bit around Iceland since... You know, we can't go anywhere else. Uh, yeah, I went to the West Fjords, which was really cool because uh, my uh, my fiance at Hapnidur, she has a family, like her family comes from a place called Adalvik, which is, I don't know what week is, like a bay or something. It's, I don't know how to translate it. But it's basically, people used to live there, like way up north in the West Fjords, but you can't live there anymore. Because there's no there's no doctors, there's no schools, there's not anything there. And the winters are stupidly harsh there. Like, uh, we went, we were walking around, there was a, a river, and they had made uh, a bridge out of, like, two f- telephone poles next to each other and put some boards over it. And that <laughs> was, well, had split in half because of the weight of the snow. We're talking, oh, like, wow. probably thousands of tons, like, on, on the... I mean, these are telephone poles. They're quite thick. Yeah, they're pretty strong. Yeah, so we had to take a boat over there because this is a national park and there's no there's no roads or anything. And they just have a small cottage there. Uh, no electricity. And yeah, it was just complete tranquility. There's not even that many birds. So, so most of the time it was just dead silence. And it was super nice. Oh, wow. Do you... Do you get phone signal there, or is that all gone as well? Uh, nothing. But we did once, uh, we, we climbed up on a mountain, because uh, there was an old army base from when the British came during the Second World War. And Those they felt like they British had some... get everywhere, don't they? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, like, they, they had some, like, they were just, they had a couple of cannons there, and they built a house so they can observe, you know, if the the enemy would arrive on ship. Hey man, the, the the Germans were hanging out in Eastern Greenland, so uh, I mean, I get it. <laughs> oh, is that, yeah. is that? I was I was about to ask. It seems a bit of a strange place to put like a military base up there. When I guess for me, that my understanding is that the war was going on in Europe. Oh, not at all. Because you so have I, a view over 
you have a view over the whole Westfjord from that mountain and uh, there was a lot of people living there and this would be a really sneaky way to get into Iceland to come from there. So they, they knew that immediately that this would be the perfect place to put a base. Yeah. Uh, luckily, nothing ever happened and everyone, everyone just had a good time with the the weird soldiers who spoke this weird language, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, kind of Iceland is situated in between like the UK and the USA, we saw how much like activity was there from like a German side of things. Like I can't imagine the threat was that great because it seems like it's situated in a very safe place in between. Actually, um, the whole post-World War II US uh, military strategy of establishing bases and uh, NATO allies and so on in Europe is um, to make sure that they don't ever end in the uh, same situation as they did back in World War II, where they were fighting uh, over dominance of the Atlantic with the Germans. So actually, it was a, it was um, it was pretty important to even have small stations like in in uh, the Vestruts in um, in Greenland as well, and that's why the Germans were also like present in in like west uh, in eastern Greenland. Um, they were they were they were fighting over dominance over the the, the whole Atlantic, and uh, if if it had just gone a little little t- wrong, then the Germans would be <laughs> basically <laughs> in charge of the whole deal. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess yeah. that that trade link between you know across the Atlantic between Europe and North America is very important. I guess whoever controls that has has great power. It was the same for the the Cold War that. The Americans, they, they had bases all over Iceland, you know, because it's a hub between Russia as well. And you can, you know, store supplies if you're going to go to war uh, to have Iceland as a sort of a stopping point before you continue. So we were we were fortunate that the British came first. <laughs> Not many people have said that. <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of funny. I, I say this all the time to my British friends that the uh, uh, the only war that, well, that I know of that the British have lost was actually against Iceland because they tried to take our fish and <laughs> we we bullied them until they left. So, you know, I think there was one cannon fire in that whole war and one person died, but we won. And that's, <laughs> so suck on that. Don't the, fuck the with Iceland. The famous cod war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't mess with us. <laughs> Don't mess with the Icelandic. Well, no, I mean, I've seen some of the people that come from, from over your way. I wouldn't mess with a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, um, it, I don't know if you guys know that over in Britain, but uh, most of Scandinavia, Iceland, Denmark, uh, Norway to some extent, have been more or less like politically aligned with the uh, with the UK for, for at least all of the 20th century and uh, and maybe even longer. Like after you guys kicked our asses in uh, in eighteen oh seven, we sort of like mellowed out and thought to ourselves, yeah, yeah, let's let's sell butter and bacon to them and uh, and see if we can be friends. Yeah, what is that? Why why is there so much bacon that comes from Denmark? Because we have like five times more pigs than people. <laughs> is that is that true? Or have you just made that up? No, that, that no, is true. I, I think it's true. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, all the other Scandinavians know us for like the red sausages anyway. So like, it's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, we have that, but with sheep. We have so much sheep over here. Yeah, I mean, I had some lovely lamb when I was over there. So it's 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 good. 
Yeah, it's it's very gamey and kind of one of a kind mm-hmm. because yeah. they just roam free. They they are not kept anywhere except over the winter, of course. Yeah, so they're not they're not penned in. No, they they can roam that like like farmers will put up fences, but there's like huge like massive areas over mountains and everything. And then they just they're actually starting to use drones now to collect them so they don't have to go up along the mountains. And collect them, so they just use the drones because the sheep are afraid. Then they run away from the drones. I think it's quite clever. And the sheep managed to get into some really crazy places as well. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever seen like the, the the goats that climb mountains and and rock faces, and it's almost like a sheer cliff face. And these goats are tiptoeing up them, and it's like yeah. you don't look like you're made to climb that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like this big fat pull up ball of like wool that just like can go anywhere the, yeah the sturdy little things out there i think that's what it is i mean that's obviously why they survive on iceland but then they're so clumsy still like when you when you interact with them it's like there's they keep falling over and like what the hell how are you so talented at climbing if you're <laughs> so clumsy uh, it's probably enough of them that they're, they're not all that good at climbing you just uh some of some of them i'm sure don't don't succeed <laughs> so uh so Sigmaria, you've recently released a new song um is it is it one of many to come is there a few more down the line or is it just a one on its own no 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 uh so this was like a, a single from my album that is coming uh it's gonna be in august i haven't quite nailed down the date yet but we're just putting the finishing touches on the the album so i'm very excited about that so the song that I released, Kirs, is like a a prayer that you that you do before a bloat or a ceremony or even wedding or something. And it, it calls to the, the Landvaktir, which are the you know, the protecting spirits of the land, to just look upon your gathering because you know their job is to protect the land and if they don't know what's going on, they protect the land. That's their job. So you need to make sure that they know what you're doing and that it's for good. And so it calls upon, well, you, you call out to the dwarves that hold up the sky, Nordre, Vestre, Sudre, Östre, and ask them actually to look upon. And if they are looking all the way at the edge of the world, so is everything else, the gods and the spirits and everything. And I've, I've actually been singing this song before because I've been doing bloats for a number of years. And this is what I like almost every time I sing this before blood and I just recently made, you know, a proper recording. And uh, yeah, it's actually a quick, funny story. Uh, I have a friend who is from Peru. He's a shaman and he comes to Iceland frequently. And he's also a really good musician. He comes here and he, you know, he's doing these meditations and and rituals and playing music and all that. And I sang the song with him once and he he it really resonated with him and a couple of months ago he sent me a message that he actually because he had been thinking about this song and he recorded it and he'd made his own like peruvian flute version of the song it is so like adorable and it's like a cover of the song was released before the actual song (laughs) (laughs) but it's yeah it's super nice and it's it's nothing at all like how i did it his is more like happy and nice and mine is more you know dark and uh, neo-folk kind of vardruna halong-esque style 
Oh wow! I mean, so is the is the song kind of your own creation? It's not got its basis from within like the original text. So have you pulled bits and pieces? Well, so so the you know letting the Landvættir know is is from the old text like in uh Eriksa Rauda where they do the Vardlokur. There's a they're basically calling upon the the spirits and just letting like asking for peace and like asking for for a blessing of like we're doing this bloat and ritual. But like the and I kind of expanded upon that. So yeah. So Matthias, obviously I mean the, the the I've I've heard obviously I had the pleasure of seeing you do the song live. Now the song's kind of based around you said the the is it I don't know whether the class is gods the four because they hold up the corner of the of the sky. Uh, the dwar- the, the dwarves. dwarves, yeah. So Matthias, is that something that kind of pops up a lot in the mythology? Um, is that where we get our names for kind of north, south, east, and west from? Well, I mean the uh, the the names of the dwarves. Uh... Uh, north, uh, east, west, and south. That that's that's original. We we have that in uh, in the sources. Um, so th- th- that must have been a sort of a, a, a old idea that 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 the the vault of the sky was was kept up by by the dwarfs. Um, and I mean, I, I think it makes sense to say, oh, uh, we have this song from Erika Sagaröda where it, it's called like Vardlokur and we know that means something to the effect of like calling on the spirits or calling on the garden guardians or, or, or something like that. But we don't know the, the song exactly. And in an Icelandic context, uh, what, what are the guardians? Well, that, that's the Landweitir. Um, so it makes perfect sense to me to like uh, uh, combine uh, these, uh, these uh, different elements and, and, and create uh, an awesome uh, ritual song like that. Um, so yeah, no, it's, I mean, this is this is like uh, building building modern traditions of on a solid foundation of of mythology and tradition. You kind of always think of dwarves as being these small little creatures. Now, is that no, no, yeah? No, no, that no. that's something I wanted to ask. Is that kind of just a misconception? There is there is no physical description of dwarves anywhere except maybe like he was ugly or he had black hair. But their physical attributes are never described as small or tall or anything, so it's kind of up to your imagination of what they what they would have looked like. They're just told like they live underground, so people think like, oh, they must be tiny to live underground. But that's not necessarily true. They can live in big caves or something. No, we can we, we can sort of uh, try to deduce some some aspects of what they look like from some of the names, uh, like Liker, um, which means corpse. And this is something that we see in a couple of texts. Um, I, I think also Alvismal, uh, where Thor has this um, uh, uh, knowledge competition with a dwarf that is trying to woo his daughter. I think he says something about how he looks like he's dead. Like Thor says to Alvis, the, the dwarf, how he looks like he's dead. So the, the closest descriptions that we get to dwarfs uh, anywhere is, is that they... They and so the suggestions are among other things that oh this might have been and um and yeah they I would say you know the uh, the most uh, probable way that it 
they would have been perceived back like in the Viking Age or something like that. There's probably like some kind of demons or, or something like that. Like these um you would never know if you could trust them. Like and uh, trusting them always had something to do with whether or not you gave them something, right? Um the the there's this uh, skull fragment that was found in Ripa in Denmark. Uh if I remember correctly, it's from the eight hundreds. Um, maybe like the early 800s, but don't trust me on that dating. Anyway, that skull fragment is really interesting because it's got a runic inscription. And that runic inscription seems to indicate that a dwarf is responsible for whatever illness the person that kept that uh, skull fragment around, hanging on, uh, around their neck, um, was suffering from. And so the suggestions are, among other things, that, oh, this might have been, you know, for some kind of mental illness or or, or some kind of illness of the head. Um, but but it's like, it, it's a very obviously a religious inscription. It, it invokes a whole tier, uh, so high, high tier. And I believe also Odin and the wolf. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a really it's a it's a really hardcore inscription if you ask me. Though so, okay, so I think like, if we suppose that Vikings did tattoo, they probably did also once in a while tattoo runes on themselves. Um, if we go to other cultures in Europe uh, who were tattooing at the same time as the Viking Age, <laughs> well, maybe it is from you know Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and that's kind of that's definitely part of it. Yeah. <laughs> What sticks in people's mind of being these thanks a lot disney well that's it yeah <laughs> i mean that's that that's something interesting that you just said there and maybe we can touch on it in a in a future podcast but when it comes to like mental illness i've never kind of thought of it in that aspect that it still will have existed you know a thousand years ago it's not a, a modern it's not a modern invention is it so is it is it common that maybe like things like that would have been dwarfs is there any evidence in like the old texts or stories of people suffering from maybe something like schizophrenia i mean we we do have a eight saga uh eight he's got this weird family line where kveldulver is called kveldulver like night wolf because he turns in he turns mean and he turns into like this wolf in 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 the evenings and like wants to you know go and hide and and, and not be around people um Skaklakrimur, his uh, son his father um he uh is also also has some aspects of this like schizophrenia or or bipolar or whatever it is um where he also all of a sudden tries to kill eight according to the saga and then we have eight who's definitely um you know, he's he's got it, like the way that it's portrayed is that he's got a hardcore temper, right? But I mean, if you if you look at it in sort of like in terms of uh, mental illness, I mean, this could be any number of of typical diagnosis. Um, bipolar, I would say, is is probably one of the big ones. Considering also, um, that's one of the really cool things about the saga itself is that there is so much about emotional uh, instability in a saga i mean he he suffers the loss of his son he has his lamb it's on a he um 
he gets all uh, depressed and just doesn't want to leave bed. And then he has like his rage uh, um, issues and, and so on. Like there's, there's so much treatment of, of emotional issues in that saga. I'm sure that that was part of, uh, you know, helping people cope and understand what those kinds of you know, mental situations um, were. And I mean, we see, see examples of that in other sagas too. There's definitely uh, examples of also how people just didn't know how to deal with severe uh, mental stuff. Like in, in Gisla Saga, there, he meets a man called Ingeldur. I think he lives on a, like a small island just off Iceland. And Ingeldur has a son, which he just called Ingeldsfiplith, like the, the idiot, my, like my idiot son. And he ties him outside and his son, like he doesn't talk. He just makes noises. So he could be like severely autistic or, or something, you know, definitely something wrong with him. And he just ties him outside and feeds him moldy bread because he doesn't know what to do with him, which is quite sad. Well, I mean, the, uh, the, the names of the dwarves, uh, uh, north, uh, east, west, and south, that, that's, that's original. We, we have that in, uh, in the sources. Um, so th th that must have been a, sort of a, a, a old idea that, that, that the, the vault of the sky was, was kept up by, by the dwarves. Um, and I mean, I, I think it makes sense to say, oh, uh, we have this song from Erika Sagaröda where it, it's called like Vardlokur. And no, but I, I, I think you also it, it's fair to point out that obviously it was a it was a different time, and and I think obviously they, they didn't understand what caused these things, and I guess if without that understanding, especially when you live in a world that believes in in spiritual, it's always spiritual things in demons and and evil in that kind of thing that you know it's easy to look at and be you know you are it's, you're possessed or a, a dwarf's got you so. You know, whilst you can't condone what they did, you also have to look at it from that perspective that it was, you know, it was a different time. It's it's not just a case of that they were being assholes and feeding the kids bread and tying them outside. I mean, some people definitely were, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this is this is though proof that even the Vikings had vaccines since Ingeldsfiple was autistic and he was vaccinated. Not <laughs> of <kidding>. course. <laughs> <laughs> No, but this this does this does prove that there there were mental illnesses, you know, way before we even knew they were a thing, and so like crazy kings and and weird stuff like these were people who were just schizophrenic, bipolar, yeah, what have you, all kinds of different mental illnesses. They just didn't have a a proper description for it, so they were just mad. Yeah, I assume it's I assume it's probably been there for you know for it's a tale as old as time. I imagine since humans started evolving, then, you know, there's been some form of mental illness there or thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, if I could just, uh, I was going to add this, but we got to talking. I was going to add to, to uh, the album that I'm working on uh, that, like, I feel like people are expecting this to be the sort of like Vardruna Halong-esque album. But actually, what I'm doing is similar to 
what Einar Selvig did when he released his solo album, when he's just like playing the lyre and singing. Uh, it's more of me uh, pulling out these old poetry and giving them life again. And I'm actually really excited, even though like people are not maybe going to be, they're going to be like, oh, this is weird. This is strange. But I'm, but I'm actually taking stuff like people haven't even heard in song form up till now, like uh, like I sang for you guys the last time. And there's only one version of from Siguros, uh, and it's just really this dramatic sort of artsy kind of symphony stuff. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to take the opportunity. No, to... no, we can we can talk. <laughs> we can jump back onto onto the music for sure. I mean, is it so? Is it kind of more? I guess the closest thing I can think to compare it to would be like an acoustic style, as in this just kind of very raw. Yeah. That is you with um with an instrument, I presume. Yeah. So so the idea is, you know, there were these people called uh they they're called scald or uh, so they would like travel between towns maybe and uh, perform music and they were not just musicians they were storytellers and even teachers because like uh, I think last time we spoke a little about it uh, like a lot of these poems like Wollusbau and so they were you would sing them you wouldn't just recite the poetry because like if you're telling a story you're always going to change it up a little bit every time you tell the same story but if you're singing a song it's not it's going to preserve better is that part of why we find a lot of it in sort of poetic form is that kind of that that trigger because we, we all know you know when you're learning studying for your exams sometimes if you put something into a rhyme it you know it sticks a little bit better than than just trying to look at a book and remember it you have to consider what uh, what Snorri Sturluson is writing in the, the prologue to to Heimskringla he says that um well uh basically this this poetry it's like our historical knowledge of what happened back then, if it's composed correctly, which means that he knows that that all of this has to be composed in a proper form to retain the memory of what happened. Yeah, so I wanted to give it the atmosphere of, you know, you're sitting at home in your farmstead and some guy comes to knock in and you, you've never even seen an instrument in your life. And he, you know, he comes in and plays music. So it's just him and his instrument. But like some, of course, I added a little bit of atmosphere, maybe some drums. But like I, I try to keep it as simple as possible to give give the feeling of you're witnessing a skull performing and teaching you about Norse mythology. That's what, I, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's gonna come out in August, but it's hard to tell right now because of all the things. No, of course. I mean, have you? Did you have it all pre-recorded, kind of before all this stuff happened, or have you been? recording um you know during the the kind of the whole situation uh well i have a studio at home so i just recorded oh perfect at home yeah and my my mate uh will hunter he's the uh the, the brains behind Vievaki, which is a nice project he's uh he's doing all the mixing and stuff so we're just working together on this and he's he's fantastic no i mean i, I i'm definitely looking forward to the album coming out I've, you know like i say i've seen you perform a couple of times now and i really enjoy that kind of very raw sort of performance it's very it almost makes it very personal not having all these you know the big loud drums um it, it, I, you know it's something that i really really enjoy 
And I guess because most people automatically when they think of kind of music around this kind of genre would be kind of Wadruna and, and Heilung, which can be very sort of band-like, very powerful. Um, so it's nice to see something different. Yeah, that's uh, more like back to the roots, I suppose. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that I imagine that's what it was as well. I mean, I assume that there is no evidence of kind of like a band as such, or do we know whether that would have been even a thing where there, like a group of people would have come together to play music? Yeah, well, at, at least in Iceland, there's not, not that I know of, any single, uh, any instrument ever found from like Viking times. Uh, like surely people like would sing and maybe like we haven't even found drums but they you know you can keep a beat just by clapping or you know drumming on a stick but so far we haven't found any evidence but that doesn't mean they of course they would have music it's from the whole like the whole whole scandinavian area you know in the viking age uh musical instruments are very sparse um i do think there there are some lyrics and stuff that have been found more recently but you know we used to say that the like it used to be sort of like a thing you said in Viking Age studies that, oh, well, all we have is a flute, pretty much. Uh, and that's it. Uh, but obviously, of course, they did have drums. They they they, they most certainly had some string instruments. I, uh, I would be surprised if they didn't because, you know, like a, a thousand years and more before, other Europeans did. So, like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> if, if all the other things can travel north, then probably also the instruments, right? But to make a drum, you need to use leather, and leather was so precious. Like there's, uh, there's one manuscript uh, of uh, Icelandic saga, where there's holes poked into one of the page because someone was using it as a strainer, because you know there's some free. They didn't know how to read. They didn't know what a book was for, <laughs> so they used the leather as a strainer for water, for for laundry or something. So le- yeah, leather was extremely precious so to waste it on a drum would you'd have to be rich uh to well to yeah but but that that's also you know some some of the icelandic magnates were definitely rich enough to be able to produce drums i mean because they would also produce books right um so but of course that also um in iceland the leather from um you know that you would usually get from from cattle would be a lot more expensive than than farther south too, um, so you could expect, for instance, in southern Norway um, and uh, in the Danish area and the Swedish area, that uh, leather would be not as expensive as in Iceland. Well, you've got the reindeer as well. That's why, like the Sami people, yeah. they had a, such an abundance of reindeer that they were just making drums left and right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's true. That's a good point. I mean, it's it's part of why. You know, we haven't found anything. I assume most um, instruments are made from organic material. There's not many kind of metal instruments. I, I guess most of them will yeah. be wood, leather, that kind of thing. Which obviously, you know, it's, it's very. You've got to be very lucky to find anything from from that long ago. No, yeah, I mean the the preservation conditions um, uh, are are not good for for those kinds of instruments. I mean, just think about this from the Viking Age. I think we found one shield like one proper shield where you still have the wood. Um, 
aside from that, what we usually find is is just the band that holds the shield together, and it says a little bit about like even some of the the you know armor and weaponry and so on doesn't get preserved that well in in the ground. Just I would say just to touch on that wash your own shield, something that I I've, I've thought of I've seen before is, I guess everyone assumes a Viking shield is, you know, it's slots it's slats of wood sort of nailed together. Now I've seen some that have like a rawhide around the edge, which I guess would pull it all together. Um, and then some that would also have like a leather front to it. Now, are they kind of just figments of modern modern times or is there any truth behind behind that? I am not sure. As I, as I just mentioned, um, the, the preservation conditions for shields are, are, are really poor. So um, I mean, all, what I know is that a shield would typically have been made of... Of, of wood um, uh, put together, um, you would have, what do you call that? You would have a, um, a like a piece of wood on the, uh, on the back, at least uh, like two, two pieces of wood holding them together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you'd have, so you'd have maybe like three or four planks that were, you know, like a flat, a flat wood laid out, and then you would have thinnish pieces going in the opposite direction that you would nail and kind of they would hold the planks together, and you would have a boss in the middle to protect the hand. Um, it was just interesting because you said it had something around the edge, um, and when I kind of done some reading before, it, it was would, would it be or kind of like that rawhide material, which is metal, metal. Oh, okay, so it was a metal bandit. Well, if you so adding adding the rawhide or metal, well, every, not everyone had metal, so rawhide, it pr- like it protects the shield from splitting if you're hitting it on the edge with a weapon, so it doesn't, you know, if you hit it with an axe, it kind of stops it instead of going through to the shield, and you can you can split the whole thing down. Absolutely, yeah, because I, I toyed around with making my own shield, and what I did is I, I used a rawhide around the edge, and I guess anybody that has dogs and gives them a dog treat, you know, you know how, how tough rawhide goes when it dries. Yeah, exactly. So you just put it in some water and get soft, and you nail it on. And they would—I uh, don't know if they would do—but like the recipe for a really strong shield is you—you you will also put uh, linen on the front and like glue it on because that also holds the shield together. So you can make a strong shield that weighs not so much because you have just some thin wood, rawhide, and linen, and that makes a really strong shield. But I don't know if they had those. This is just a modern, you know, like recipe for a really good shield. <laughs> well, that's probably what I what I've seen, and that's why I'm wondering whether there's any evidence to kind of back that up. I think it's a it's a very likely uh, way that they would have produced a a, a cheap shield, um, and uh, the 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 interesting thing is that it's still. We're still you know, wondering a little bit how how did they actually use the shields and when they were fighting and um, this uh, experimental archaeologist in Denmark has written a master's thesis on the shields and just basically trying them out um, the constructions and so on trying them out and he came to the conclusion that it, it was most likely that they would actually have used the shields actively, not so much to like hide behind in like the shield wall that we see in, in shows like Vikings and stuff like that, but more like actively actually pushing, hitting and so on, because they wouldn't be strong enough to withstand, you know, a situation where a whole army just clashes onto your shields like that. So you mean 
there isn't that moment where someone shouts shield wall and they all lock together in this impenetrable no i'm sorry I, that, that that's at least his conclusion but you know there could be a lot of factors that aren't uh taken into account and things we still don't know about the constructions of the shields so so you know, maybe they did do shield wall. We just we just don't know. <laughs> well, usually fights were pretty one-sided. It was usually either a slaughter or a surrender. It wasn't this epic Hollywood fight where almost everyone dies, but then there's two heroes. Like, it was usually one side was just decimating the other. Yeah, I've always, I've always thought about that when you see kind of these Hollywood fights, and then it's like pretty much everybody dies apart from a handful, a handful of people. I'm like... Even though you've technically won, you've kind of almost also lost because most of your people are dead. So if anybody yeah. turns up now, you're pretty screwed. Yeah, no, I mean that's uh, th- th- those uh, big slaughters and so on. They they come later on. Um, you you do have, of course, uh, situations where um, you know it it it's a those quote unquote epic battles that we see in in Hollywood, but but. Um, no, the uh, this is a, the quite interesting with that guy who asked us that question about the uh, the, the the knights if uh, if they could get uh, offed by uh, by a bunch of peasants, right? Oh, okay, mean, let let now now you now you brought it up. We'll <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll mention it. So a, a couple of episodes ago, we we mentioned or or Matthias mentioned that if if a knight was was knocked off his horse wearing his armor then he would be pretty vulnerable to a peasant who could come up and stab him through the eye or in the armpit or basically, you know, get get the better of him. Now, we received a, a comment basically saying that we don't know how true that necessarily would be, that a peasant wouldn't be skilled enough to to sort of kill a knight who was who had, you know, been pushed over. So I think it's, I think Mateus has been uh, stewing on it for a little bit, and it's been bothering him. So. Oh, please, no, no, not at all. <laughs> so no, you 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 address it. You you defend your honor. The fact is that if you are wearing that uh, total plate mail armor that's covering the entire body, you will need a crane to get onto your little horse. <laughs> I would disagree. I've I've seen I've seen videos. There's a uh I think it was French guy. He was demonstrating like he was doing backflips and climbing and all. So this, but I mean these armors are heavy, but you can still move around a lot. Yeah, you can, you can, but um, <laughs> but nonetheless, you're you're not that mobile when you're when you're getting taken off a, a, a horse when you're sitting in that armor, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I would go with you Matthias. um we've we, we've got to stick together <laughs> as a team <laughs> we have um um a, a a pretty interesting historical precedent for this um and that was um and seeable you're gonna love this as a uh as an icelander um when the danish army was completely obliterated in Dietmarschen in um, what is now Northern <laughs> Germany. <laughs> um, so, so this was a really interesting um, uh, uh, defeat, where you basically have like a Danish army um, led by the Danish king, that uh, where they're all decked out in in uh, in all the armor, right? And then you have a bunch of peasants. Um, just a bunch of peasants with no armor, who managed to lure them all into 
uh, this area um, that is swampy and they get stuck in the mud and, and, and all that stuff. And then they just, that these peasants, they just like stroll down and, uh, you know, poke your eye out. <laughs> through your armor <laughs> and, oh shit yeah no, that, that was in the early 1500s i can't I can't remember the exact date but that's a that's a great example yeah it was the it was the year 1500 um this is a great example of how you know this is one of the, the so-called turning points in modern uh, uh northern european warfare where we see that the the knights they they stop being that effective because People are finding ways to kill him off, basically. Yeah, I, th- I think I, you know, I I defended what you said because I th- I think if you you know if you pulled a knight off and he was laid on his back, and I think maybe you know if he had time to get to his feet, then you know maybe he would and he had his sword he would be able to fight back. But I think if he was on his back and a peasant was to attack straight away. I, my personal chat would be that he doesn't have much of a chance because uh, that's the same without armor. If someone pulls you off a horse, mm-hmm. you're pretty immobilized. No, but <laughs> armor I, I, or not? No, but I think if with the, in that situation, if you were on your back, you would have better of a chance defending yourself without the armor than with the heavy. With I guess, it, but then you've got the armor to protect you. But <laughs> I mean, it's, it's uh, maybe it's it's there's no winning argument in in this no. discussion. It's... No, no, but <laughs> I, I I think you know whether you're a peasant or not. When it comes to fighting and surviving, I think that all goes out of the window, and it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter what your what your rank is. It comes down to survival instinct and it gets very gets very brutal very fast so i think you know if 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 a peasant had a knight on the floor and they're on their back and they're trying to get it with this heavy iron it's I, it's I all about who it's wants gonna it get most pretty stabby. but that's it yeah exactly yeah i mean i i think that the guy who who uh who's, who said this he, he had a good point in saying you know these knights they would be more more trained that's that's of course a a a, a good point but um, then again, I mean, if if you have four peasants uh, taking down a knight, but uh, I guess we're getting into speculations at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, my I personally think the weight of the armor would be would be too much. But <laughs> <laughs> we need we need yeah. some 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 um, armor historians in in here for this. <laughs> if, if anybody if anybody has any armor that might fit me, I'm happy to try it on, and we can. Uh, do a, a podcast reconstruction and see what happens. Oh, can I please pull you off a horse <laughs> when you're in full armor? <laughs> the things I'll do for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, one thing that the last time you were on here, Sigurd, um, we teased the talking about runes, and I think we ran out of time. Now, runes, uh, runes is a, a topic that I think a lot of people really enjoy. I mean, there is so much information out there on the correct side the wrong side there's so much misinformation you know you only have to look in you know scroll through facebook or one of the facebook groups and you see heated arguments going on every single day about runes and what they mean whether they were magic whether they were you know this and that so i think it would be good to kind of touch on it um and and i'd certainly look forward to hearing you two speak about it. so mateus coming from a very academic side you coming from a spiritual side 
and then seeing what we can find in the middle. Okay, uh, so I have been pretty excited about this, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop some knowledge bombs that, uh, like someone said, uh, the truth doesn't care about your feelings. So if you get offended by this, <laughs> that's on you. Like some people, are like oh no, it's not how it is. Like I don't care. This is the truth. Well, that's <laughs> no, but that's that's a good way to be, and I think that's how we always try to be to be on here as well. I know Matthias has always been like that. You know, he'll always, it is what it is. We'd rather be accurate than, you know, help save people's egos because at the end of the day, you no one ever learns if you, if you uh, pander to egos. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk about are the original runes that the first runes ever. And these runes are, they're not Scandinavian. They're not Germanic, they're not even Indo-European. But we have to do a quick like history lesson here. So if you guys bear with me, I'll try to get through this pretty quick. So when we define runes, uh, I'm not talking about like cave paintings and symbols. They don't count as a writing system. And like writing systems don't count as an alphabet. For example, the 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 hieroglyphs are a writing system, but they're not an alphabet. And uh, so the, the first actual alphabet is our runic. And an alphabet is, you know, vowels and consonants representing speech. And that's what the first runes were, you know, that we have discovered. They, they pre predate the Sumerian writing system, which is 3,000 years BCE. That's before the Common Era, so that would be... 5,000 years ago. Uh, Sumerian was in modern Iraq. Uh, people, people sometimes say that the runes come from the east, from the Phoenicians, which is a good guess, which is from Israel or Lebanon. Lebanon. But that is a Western writing system from 2500 BCE. This is a lot of information. I, I know if you don't understand, but there's a point to this. Let me just <laughs> keep going. The, the Phoenicians, they didn't start developing an alphabet until 12,000 BCE. So the Phoenicians had been around for, what, like uh, 1,300 years before they even started writing. And their writing was influenced by the Egyptian writing system, which is from 3,200 BCE, which is 5,200 years ago. But the, the Egyptians, they didn't have an alphabet. They had a writing system. Okay, so about 200 years later from the, from the Phoenicians, uh, the alphabet started to look more runic and the Greeks adopted the way of writing 800 uh, BCE, so 800 yeah, before Christ, and they created the Greek alphabet. But now, prepare for this, prepare <laughs> for the shocker. The oldest runic symbols is, that we have found are from... 17,500 years ago. They are much, much older than we know. And uh, we're talking symbols now. We're not talking uh, writing system or alphabet. And they are from what is modern day Portugal. This is the late stone age. There, there's, you know, there's not even the, the last, the, there's still glaciers like covering Europe at this time and there's woolly mammoth and everything the first runic alphabet 
also comes from Portugal, northern Portugal, about 7,500 years ago-ish. And they are called the Alvao runes. And this is the oldest alphabet known so far. And we've known this, you know, like, like archaeologists, we've known this for quite some time, like over 100 years at least, that we have known about these runes and they've been categorized. But people don't seem to know about them because they're more fixated on the the Elder Futharks, which I'll get to in a second. So what is interesting is that the writing, sentences, words, explanations, all that comes from Portugal, whether you care, whether it offends you or not, this is the truth. And the, the writing travels east to like um, the Middle East, India, Asia, and then it comes back. So it's quite, quite interesting that writing starts in Western Europe travels and then people kind of forget about it in in europe it comes goes to the east and comes back as if the people in the east had invented writing but this is you know this is such a long time ago so <clears throat> the elder futhark uh the earliest runes that we have found are from circa 160 ce that's common era that's after christ so 160 this time and they are on a comb from Denmark, uh, I think. And they they re they have the the word Haria on it, which could be hair or warrior or something. This maybe that Matthias would know more about. It's usually interpreted as as, as like the word warrior. So yeah. Yeah, and uh, these are these are. It's unlikely that these are the very first runes. Like it's unlikely that this comb. It's the first time someone wrote runes ever, so they could be older. There is another um, artifact uh, from, from northern Germany that's about 100 years earlier, where it's unsure if it's runes on it. We're, we're not entirely sure, but, uh, but some say that it might have a runic inscription. Yeah. So, But the, now that we're talking about the runes that we are familiar with, they are based on the, the Greek or Roman alphabet. This is something that you know, perhaps was an attempt to draw something different because as you can tell, a lot of the letters look the same, the R and the B and all that. These are, you know, the from the familiar alphabet that we know. And later on, this magical meaning is imbued into the, the runes with the, you know, fear meaning riches and all that. But the, the alphabet that we have, alphabet, has the same. We just don't do it the way. Like alpha means house and beta means... No, beta means house and alpha means leader. And like all the letters have a name and they all mean something. We just imbued this magical thing into the runes later on. And the elder Futhark stopped being used uh, around the 8th century. And that's when the younger Futhark takes over. And that's what the Vikings would have used, the younger Futhark. And there's... Uh, there's dozens of variations of the younger Futhark depending on like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Iceland, and then uh, this century, that century, or even this town and that town. Everybody had their different variations on it. So there's lots of different ones. And the runes were usually written phonetically, you know, as because they didn't really have a, they didn't go to school to learn how to write. So there's a lot of information on the runes that people seem to just grasp at that no they were invented by odin and they are totally viking scandinavian like that's not true that's not how it is drops mike 
um, so my question is when you say obviously runes would go back to, to Portugal how much would they look like the runes of like like the elder for that is it some would they be the same would they be the same shape or would they just be something that kind of resembles a writing style yeah, some of them are are the same exactly the same and some of them are something we don't recognize just completely different so so they have definitely been developing over time but you know they've stayed relatively close to like for yeah over 7000 years that they've just kind of kept mm-hmm. being the same way, which is I mean, I imagine quite you know anyone anybody that's seen Rune sees you know they're they're just you know most of them are just made up of straight lines. So I guess it's kind of obvious that you would if you were going to create an alphabet out of straight lines, you would probably get a lot of similar shapes. Probably, yeah. And you know, I would I would argue that you know it's easier to to carve a straight line into some wood or a rock that are better than the the curved so maybe that's a, that's a factor and exactly. why the runes look this way can i just take us to the 19th century for a bit so what happens in the 19th century especially in scandinavia and especially in iceland is that um we start thinking that literature is the end all of culture and i mean for obvious reasons icelandic scholars go in that direction because we have a lot of really awesome literature from from medieval Iceland and we're uh, wanting to get rid of the Danes. Uh, so so this is what we base our culture Woo. on. <laughs> 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 and um, and this this sort of becomes like the 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 mode of thinking not just in Iceland everywhere else in Europe uh, but and it's but especially in in Scandinavia the mode of thinking is that oh culture um, comes from literatures and you know, with literature you know we also need a writing system right and so so we we're, we're looking at everything from that perspective of of um, the the visual representation of language on pages and and in, carved in wood and and whatever as like the origin of culture and so it becomes you know a a long argument with between scholars when does that come into existence and it becomes meaningful to talk about where it comes from too right because we would like to you know, for it to come from places that we can better associate with hence you know looking to rome looking to greece and so on but not too much right because uh we want to also retain our quote-unquote germanic identity here uh not everything came from southern europe we we had our own little inventions too and that's how we went up we wind up with uh, odin as the inventor of runes <laughs> right and and all those things right so this is really important to take into consideration that that we still have a lot of like uh, that mentality when we th- think about things of language, literature, and writing systems that 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 is part of like this notion of like this is this creates our identity. Um, obviously, there was a lot of identity long before pe- people were writing, um, and long before they knew anything about writing um, in different cultures and in in different ways, and. Um, 
I don't know anything about those runes from Portugal. Um, I think this is really interesting. As you were talking about it, Zero Body, I was just, uh, um, uh, I was just trying to research it a little bit uh, and uh, was founding a little bit, uh, finding a little bit that that does seem very interesting. And it's yeah, it makes it makes total sense that uh, different cultures um, produce a writing system that is calibrated for carving in wood and stone and, and so on. Um, and I would not at all be surprised if we see such a writing system emerging in different places. You know, there are different theories about the origin of various things, right? Um, for instance, there, there's there's this theory of, uh, like, you know, slings or uh, spear uh, spears and so on being invented in different places at the same time or independently of one another because they're so very simple things to invent basically now uh, uh, I would pose that that could be the same thing for writing systems uh, if we go back to the idea that oh writing systems and literature and all of that stuff is like the epitome of culture which people thought back in the 19th century that would be completely my, my suggestion that you know writing systems could be in, invented independently in different places, they would completely reject that idea because uh, it has so much to do with the idea of civilization in and of itself, right? But, um, you know, from my perspective, uh, I, there's no nothing that, that should hinder the possibility that you have different populations across the world that invent writing systems in different ways that look very similar too. And so uh, this is a little uh, along the same argument that we uh, that I that I posed with uh, with tattooing, right? The tattooing is such a simple thing, in a, in a, in a, in and of itself, right? All you need is a needle and some ash to make a tattoo on your body. It might not be a great tattoo, but all, that's really all you need. Yeah, but there's symbols like the swastika. It appears everywhere because I mean it's it's not that many lines, and even kids doodling in their school books draw the swastika. You know, so. It's bound to happen everywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's that's. The, so, I I think you know it's a it's a really really interesting argument that you that you bring into the table, and I I think you're you're to the extent that I know about all of this, uh, I think that you're you're right that uh, you know if we call writing systems like this runes, yeah, uh, they seem to be in circulation in the European area over over millennia um, go to uh, pre-roman italy and you can see quote-unquote rune stones uh, these uh, etruscan I, th I think they are you know inscriptions with uh, an etruscan uh, writing system that looks very similar to the runes so yeah yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah it's actually another interesting thing like the the cult of the snake which i don't know too much about but while I was digging for this information, I found also the cult of the snake, which is one of the oldest sort of pagan religions out there. It also comes from northern Portugal from like thousands of years ago. So they're like, there was something cooking in Portugal <laughs> that I don't know. <laughs> well, it seems like it's an early place for a lot of, uh, you know, you know you know, civilization in, in Europe, actually. Like, a lot of things are developing. And it makes sense, too, if you... You know, we're, we're still uh, hunter-gatherers in Northern Europe and uh, people are getting more sedentary and starting to build uh, civilization in, in Portugal. A lot of things would probably, you know, 
have some kind of origin there. Do you think that could be down to it having such a big coastline as well? So obviously there's there's a lot of fishing. Hopefully, you know, the you tend to find a lot of places that that kind of grow into power tend to be around kind of you know, waterways. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, as soon as we see people sailing, right, Portugal and the eastern part of the Mediterranean are, you know, linked. That that happens very very quickly even you know in the in the stone age right um from from the the agricultural sedentary stone age we have these burial mounds right uh that show up along the 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 coastline of the mediterranean um you know italy spain uh, up along the the western european coast right into scandinavia the british isles it's it's a it's a culture that seems to spread along waterways. It's what I always keep telling people, you know, as soon as humans invent boats, water is a highway, not an obstacle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I it. like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, really, it's really important to, to, to consider because um, uh, that, that also means then that, uh, you know, a place like Iceland, for instance, is not as isolated as it is otherwise you know, by historians considered to be, right? That it's, there's actually a much, much more opportunity for, for connections. And it's not like it's not dangerous to sail in Viking ships, for instance. But, you know, it's a, it's a fast way to get around places like Scandinavia. That reminds me, uh, I think you were to, on the podcast with, it was either with, with Sean Perry or uh, Brock, uh, the Badger King, that you guys were talking about something that I wanted to correct. Uh that there's there is they say that they're like the first settlers of Iceland were the the monks papar that come to Iceland, but the the only evidence that we have is from Ari Frodi, which is was a scholar. He was well renowned, and I think one of the first Icelanders who spoke Latin or wrote in Latin anyway, and he said that he found some bells, on an island and. Therefore, monks were here. There's no other evidence, and there have been active searches. So it's and so basically, it's probably not true that the monks. So the first settlers in Iceland were the Vikings, that we know of, because there's no proof. There's no like actual evidence of the papa being in Iceland other than word of mouth that there were maybe people here before. Yeah. So uh, this is uh, from Islandinga book uh, where he writes this. And it is very obvious that uh, Ari Frodi is attempting to uh, actually create Iceland as a Christian country already before it was Christian. And that's the whole function of the papar and why he's like saying, oh, there, there was like these bells and books and, and, and crosses. Um, but the suggestion is that, uh, that there is a, a Gaelic population, not a Christian, uh, uh, not because of Christianity or anything like that, not monasteries or anything like that, but but a Gaelic population before that, and whether that's true or not, we uh, I don't think we know. I mean, the the most recent investigations, right, uh, archaeologically, is from Stelvafjordur. Yeah, like it's not unlikely, but we don't have enough proof no. to say so. No, that's true. For me, it seems like the the whole thing about the monks being there is kind of just. Christianity wanting to put a Christianity stamp on something that that and, is exactly yeah. what it is. <laughs> we 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 actually were here first, 
you know, this is a Christian land. Like, that's kind of how he seems to me from the outside, almost. Um, just to just to jump back on to, to runes. So do we, is there any kind of definition of what, what a rune is in the sense of, you know, as you look back to these ones in Portugal, like what would make them a rune and something else not? I mean, does that definition exist or is it just kind of like an early writing style that kind of looks like that? We call a rune. I mean, so the the word rune is is a Germanic Nordic word, um, and it is applied to the, the the writing systems that are used in Northern Europe. So uh, then you know through ages and tradition, I guess it it's sort of like become a thing that we call like these writing systems that have similar styles. Like you can talk about Turkish runes too, because there's a bunch of uh, Turkish peoples in Central Asia and elsewhere that have been, you know, carving similar types of, of, of letters, right? But I mean, it, what we should call it is a writing system. If it's, if it's a, as, as a single body, you def, you, I think you defined it pretty well. You like the, it's basically like a grapheme that uh, that either uh, represents a vowel or a consonant, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So a writing system could also be symbols, like uh, you know, in hieroglyph, a bird means Ramses. Yeah. But you don't spell out Ramses; you mm-hmm. put just the picture of a bird, and there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But that that doesn't count as an alphabet, but it's still a writing system. Yeah, and it doesn't count as a rune because it's another type of of writing system, right? Yeah, exactly. That was one thing that. I see sort of suggested quite often. Like I say, I, I always mention the Facebook uh, groups because I like to scroll through them quite often. Um, is, <laughs> oh boy. Is, peop- is, is people sort of saying that runes, like you said, you mentioned earlier about the runes having their own meaning and each one meaning something. Is is them being used in that kind of like hieroglyphic manner where, you know, one would mean money, so they would write that letter to mean money. Now, is that is that true, or is that something that's again made up? Yeah, I don't know too much about that stuff, but I know there are instances in Iceland where people would use runes as a curse. So, if somebody, you know, did something to you, you would just write maybe "hagal," which is "hak" or like "hail." You would write just the rune "hagal" on a board, and you would leave it on their doorstep as a curse. So that's just one letter. But it's a cur- and if you found that outside your door, you would you'd be scared. Like I'm cursed now. Yeah, and th- those are those are uh, relatively late examples, that, which is why uh, scholars typically say, "Oh, that's not how it was back in the day." But there are examples of this going all the way back to the earliest runic inscriptions, where where it, very obviously one rune stands for some some kind of uh, symbol, and. Uh, all we have to go from here is uh, what we know from the uh, runic poems, the, uh, the 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 Norwegian, the Icelandic, and uh, and the Old English, for that matter, uh, or the much later uh, Swedish one. Um, that that the runes in those poems they have some kind of like inherent meaning uh, as a, as a symbol, right? So M stands for mother, and that's man, and that then you can sort of like unfold some kind of interpretation from there, right? Um, so, so when we look at an, an inscription, say, from the 400s, like from Sweden in the 400s, and it has some kind of line that says something, 
and then you see a, a bunch of uh, runic letters just inscribed that make no sense. You can either go with an interpretation of like, oh, so this is a uh, man, uh, uh, I don't know, tear, so on. Um, or, or you can try to make sense. One of the things that's really important to know, a lot of these inscriptions can get really, really hairy. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really difficult to read them. And, and in some cases, it's very obvious that a rune is like inscribed as like a symbol. That is very obvious. That's, I mean, runes obviously are very complex on their own. So it seems like going back between these two styles of one, it just being a writing style and then also being used in that kind of like hieroglyphic kind of way and flipping between the two just makes it even more complex. Absolutely. And they intended that. It's very obvious that, that the, some of these guys, they were all like, ah, oh, this is going to be like so mysterious when people did it. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, because the runes, they work both ways, but writing systems like the hieroglyphs don't. You can't write out a sentence with, you know, birds, triangle, waves, and that means something else. They always mean the thing they mean. Yeah. Do, do we know which came first? Would it have been... There would have been like a writing style first and then they were given... No, I think... Well, yeah, so like like I explained, the oldest runic symbols from 17,500, they would have probably been in the hieroglyphic sense of just a symbol that means one thing. And they, they did the rune and this means prosperity. But then later on from like 7,000 years ago, they start using it as an alphabet and they're writing messages, information. But in in terms of within kind of like Scandinavia, would it have been a writing style and then the runic poems would have been created after to then give meaning to each one? Yeah, I think the meaning is imbued in the runes already when they read Scandinavia. The the oldest example of the runes having a name, right, is uh, from the ninth century. It's the Apicadarium Nordmanicum. Uh, which I believe is a ninth century uh, quote unquote poem, right? Is that that the short little list uh, um, where where each rune is given a name and there's like a half a sentence involved here and there. Um, it's 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 a very uh, people have tried to get a lot out of it. Yeah, I actually sing that on on my album uh, Runa Kwaide. <laughs> so there's something to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, the, uh, aside from that one, what we have otherwise are, are is the um, uh, old English poem, as as the other old one, right? It's you know it's it's written down actually in a in a much later version, but it's presumably as old or even older than than the Apidarium of Monica. Um, it suggests at least there is there are names attached to them from at least like the Viking Age and onwards. Yeah. So, like to to expand on what what Mateus was saying, uh, like the one stanza, like from the first from Fie, or from Fulthark, is uh, Fie veldur frænda roje fæðist ulfur í skóje. This this can like I say can get hairy because like Fie Fie causes uh, frændur, which are uh, like related people, like because frændi doesn't just mean cousin; it also means uncle and just someone related to you. It causes them, so fear causes them to fight. And then 
fæðist úlfur í skógi. Fæðist both means to give birth and also to eat, to feast, fæða, feast. And so the, the meaning of it is interpreted usually as uh, there are two frændur who are fighting and there is a wolf eating in the forest. They, the frændur are blaming each other. You took my sheep, you took my fear, but, but it was the wolf who took it instead because so so uh this is what it means i fear which means both you know she or just wealth or riches that wealth and riches cause people to fight that's the short message people can't handle wealth they will just fight over it yeah and that's a that's a very sort of like expanded meaning from the um from the old uh apicidarium nordmanicum um which is like actually it's as a poem or whatever it is is really interesting because it's like mixes three languages it mixes the uh the the nordic language and uh saxon and uh old high german like in one and uh just to give the same stanza or the, at least for the same uh, letter for for fear uh in that one it just says fear forma so fear is the first one or something like that and that's it then, then it says ur after, and so on. So, so it's, it's very abbreviated compared to the the uh, the, the old Norse uh, poem, which has you know uh, so much more meaning to it. And uh, the interpretation that you just gave, Sirovoli, you could sort of like trace that interpretation into saga literature, into Norse mythology, and see that it basically holds true in in a whole in, in sort of like a whole context of Norse literature in and of itself, right? So I was gonna say one of one of the other things I commonly see people arguing over is uh is double runes. Um now obviously we know that double runes were used, but it's just why they were used or I guess the reason I see I see this getting con- contested many, many times over and over. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, the runes, they were usually written phonetically. Uh, so people, you know, a lot of them, they were just writing like, this is how the word sounds like, uh, like the word ekki means don't, but ekki has two Ks in modern Icelandic. But the way you say it, ekki, it's like e h. K I instead of just E K K I. So eh key. So when you see the word E H K I eh key written somewhere, you're like scratching your head, like what does that even mean? Like, oh eh key, which means don't. So it it uh so the double runes, uh yeah, there's probably more more to it that Mateus can add on, but I think it's just people not exactly knowing what they're doing and and it's catching on that maybe you should do double runes instead of single ones to be more specific of what you're talking about. You know, so let's we have to go back to also, there was never a standardized way of writing the runes. We do see uh, something of a standard in the Viking Age, actually, and it's the most ridiculous thing ever. So what happens in the 700s is that some somebody in Scandinavia decides, let's just, you know, shorten down those 24 letters that we have in the older Futhark uh, to 16 in the younger Futhark. And then uh, we later on, we get an expansion again where people start adding new runes because they figure out, hey, wait a minute, I can't write my language 
with this abbreviated writing yeah. system. <laughs> this, this, this is why, you know, a T can be both a T and a D in the Viking Age uh, uh, runic writing system. And what we see there is that they, it's all about abbreviating all the time. So double consonants and, and uh, you know, combined consonants like uh, uh, N, D, M, D, or, or stuff like that uh, get written like just one, one rune. Um, and that makes it really hard sometimes to actually read some of the runic inscriptions because they, they're just like abbreviating like crazy. And as I said, then, then people come to the census again around the 1100s and, and start, you know, adding more runes again. Um, and so if we're talking about a modern situation where, like, do we write, if I want to write something and do I write uh, that with uh, double consonants or, or not? I, I think, you know, people should do what makes most sense. Like we can, we, we can, we can always try to emulate the way that the Viking Age runes were written, but they were fucking daft. That those ways of writing them was stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry, but <laughs> and and you know, back like in the 500s, it made much more sense the way that they were writing runes. And again, in the in the 1200s, just to put that out there. And we are already using. Like the, the Greek or the Roman alphabet is older than the Elder Futhark. We're already using an older form of writing. And the way we use it is just, you know, how, how it fits our normal uh, modern society. So, yeah, how you want to write your name is completely up to you. If I want to write my name with an X, then that's my own goddamn business. <laughs> <laughs> so so there, wasn't, there isn't any sort of rules as to to when you would use a double rune, would it be kind of just down to the person who was writing it, whether you know whether like you say whether they knew what they were doing or their personal preference, I guess maybe. Yeah, like what Matteo said that you know there's no rune for D, so you would do T. So maybe someone would use the T rune if you're doing a D, but double T if you want a hard instead of D. So, you know, that could be one of the, because it's all, you know, phonetic and people were daft, as, as he put it. <laughs> well, I mean, it was, it was so it, it looks like, like in the Viking Age, they're trying to, to have a standard for writing. It's not always followed completely, but there is like an attempt to have a standard for, uh, for writing. Uh, and though that attempt is like the stupidest that I've seen actually, because it you know <laughs> abbreviates the, the the letter system, and it, the letter system doesn't add the uh, or doesn't add up to the uh, f uh, like the, the different phonemes that are present in the language, right? So it 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 you know it basically what it means is that you would have to like if you did the same thing today, you know we'd have to get rid of uh, six seven um, uh, letters out of the modern English alphabet and then try to get along with that. Right, and 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 so they're doing that, and I have to date not seen anybody, any scholar being able to really properly explain why. And then so then we're in this situation of like um, they're following this this writing system until they get tired of it. <laughs> like, like in the eleven hundreds, that's when it seems like Scandinavians get tired of it, and then start you know, expanding the letter system again. 
So we're like uh, it, the only the only time that we see sort of like an attempt of making a standardized runic inscription uh, or ru way of writing runes. Like they they they, they screw it up. <laughs> That's actually what's happening here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like for for us modern humans, we go to school as children. It takes us like years to be able to be you know good at writing and i'm sure people back then didn't go for years practicing on textbooks they had maybe some guy come in and teach them for a day or two and then just had to kind of remember what he said what was that again he taught us five years ago <laughs> oh yeah i'm gonna knock that into stone you know fail friend or rogue uh how, how did that one go again <laughs> you know <laughs> it must be an absolute nightmare to try and uh try and translate some of these inscriptions yeah it can be yeah but it, i mean think about that those those poems they probably exist because this was the way that it was taught right so so people were taught um to remember fear based off of this rhyme right and if you if you screw it up then maybe you you can't actually remember what it what it is and I mean, it, there were probably like some kind of like guilds or something like that for like rune carvers, right? So like that was a thing you could be in the Viking Age. Maybe the skald was also a rune carver. There's some things that suggest that. So the skald would be in charge of basically preserving all the cultural traditions of, of, of the, the realm, right? Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah, like so history, mythology and writing and everything and it all comes together in one one big jumble and so the skull uh could be the one who was taught the runic poem and also the runic letters and was responsible for like getting hired by by a king or a local chieftain or whomever who needed a runestone uh, and then they would chop that in right and, and that's 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 probably how as organized as it could have been at the time I mean, I wonder how many inscriptions there are out there that the person thought he was writing one thing and because he didn't remember exactly what he was doing, it kind of just tails off into something else or doesn't really make any sense even though he really thought he was writing the, the right thing. Probably as many as there are embarrassing Chinese character tattoos on <laughs> people oh, from <yeah>. Western Europe. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I'm sure there's just as many runic ones that that people have, because um, that, that's definitely something that you see a lot of is people asking, "How do I write this so I can get it tattooed on me?" And I bet so many times people have given them something that's not that's not oh, right. I've seen so many so many runic tattoos. They're just like I I can't even. Like, I don't know what's, it's just a jumble of letters. And you think it stands for Jonathan? Like, no, it doesn't. Like, <laughs> it's just some weird stuff. I, I once got an email from somebody. It's like, I got this runic tattoo. Could you tell me what it says? I'm like, wait, what? Did, did you get it? Yeah. What? That's the wrong way around to <laughs> yeah. do it. Yeah. <laughs> should have should have asked you first. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially because it didn't say anything at all. <laughs> then it's really tough for you to... to to say that to them, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, the last the last thing I want to touch on the rune before we get to sort of questions from, from the fans is it's just the magic 
Now, you know, you hear runes and magic being used time and time again. So what's the what's the truth? What's the reality there with, with kind of like the connection? If if you wanna say from your perspective, Sigurd. Uh okay. <laughs> so if we go into the magic staves like the Ice Helmet and Vagvisid and stuff, that's uh almost like close to modern Christianity, like we're talking 17th to 19th century, uh, like 98% of those staves are from those times. Uh, the Ayas Helmut is older. It's closer to 1200 or even before. And it's, uh, it's Ayas can, can both mean like Ayas means to, to instill fear. And Ayas means to, I think, something like protect. So there there were probably possibly either two variations or two different and that's another thing. There could have been a runic like if somebody writes Ayis or Uyis, it's such a fine difference between you know fear and something else. And uh the casting of runes is probably also very modern. And even you even hear some people like if if the rune is upside down or backwards then it means the opposite which is just some wiccan bullshit that came about like 50 years ago so i wouldn't i wouldn't believe that that yeah that, well, that's another thing that you see like you say very often is that an upside down or back to front rune has the the opposite meaning of no of what it's meant to have that's that's actually not even wiccan it's nazi bullshit it's a uh, it's all the uh <laughs> It's it's connected to the ear uh, rune or the the one that also spells mother, right? Um, if you turn it upside down, it means death and all that stuff. You know, it's like no. I guess my my logic has always been that if they if they wrote kind of on the rune stones and they, you know they circled around, some of the runes are upside down, and they also I think there's also evidence of them writing Brustrophodon, which is backwards and forwards. So why would you do that if they had these big bad negative meanings? So I kind of logically called bullshit on it, but it is something that seems to be really highly believed by a lot of people that, you know, upside down, back to front runes are really negative. You know, I, I see them, like I say, I'm, I'm a sucker for looking in these Facebook groups. I mention them all the time on here. Uh, but you see people getting really kind of on their high horse telling people, why would you get that toad on you? It's backwards. Do you know what it means? It's going to, you're going to die in a week. <laughs> like this kind of play. stuff. Goes, <laughs> but this, this kind of stuff goes on and it's just like, you know, so it it's very much believed by a lot of, I probably, I, I would say it's probably believed by more people than not believed. Well, I hope they're listening then. That me too, man. And and you know, you have to consider that the prerequisite for thinking like that is the books, right? Like that you have to have a book to be able to think, oh, that there is some meaning to upside down or or inverted or something like that. Because those people who are carving those rune stones and um, you know, using runes in, in those kind of medium uh, as like the uh, you know combs or a little stick where you write a, a little message that where you tell somebody hey come to this party it's awesome or something like that because those inscriptions also exist by the way uh, <laughs> or, or carl sucks or stuff like that you know um they never ever thought in that way that that oh because this stick where i've written carl sucks now I turned it upside down, then it's all fucked up. Cal's awesome. <laughs> no, that's not how it works, right? 
So no, that's yeah, that 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 that's very modern way of thinking about what runes are. Yeah, I still like I work I work a lot with the magic staves. Like I'm getting into tattooing and all that, and people think like, oh, they were made by these you know Christian stuff like. And they just kind of dismiss them then, but they're still very interesting and they are connected with magic done in Europe and in Iceland. And uh, I don't think we should dismiss them just because they're like, and a lot of them were even considered black magic. So it was probably anti-Christian to be fiddling around with magic at these times. So the people who were making these books and making these magic staves were anything but Christian. They were like pagans. And they, a lot of them were killed and, you know, hanged or burned for their witchcraft. And they're also, you know, that's a, those uh, magical staves, they're in sort of a, a, basically just a natural development or expansion from those earlier uh, runic uh, traditions, I would say. I mean, yeah, they, they get mixed up with, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian magic, but uh, I mean that's that's how things go, like you know, um, you know, folklore and popular culture is always eclectic and takes uh, impressions from from all kinds of traditions. Um, I just thought one last question that I want to know personally. Um, so when it comes to to sort of bind runes, um, I know I think we spoke about briefly before that you have kind of the evidence of, of some being laid together maybe like one or two but when you i guess the, the closest thing that most people will have seen would be say like the wardruna album covers where you do a really complex kind of coming off a different angle you know, you know the multi-layered is there anything like that in in history said suggested they would have done that is that kind of like, again a more modern thing because it looks pretty fucking cool there's nothing sorry no, <laughs> I mean it does look fucking cool, womp, womp. and 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 I think it's awesome that people are doing it that way. I mean, I make bind runes like that myself, but we don't really have have much of that in in the traditional material. But look, there's one thing we haven't touched upon with all of this, and that is, we probably don't have access to more than I don't know ten percent of all runic inscriptions that have been made and all the different kinds of materials and in all the different kinds of ways, right? We don't know what people might have been doing out there. We can't say for sure. All, all, all we can say as scholars is that, well, this is what we have. We have evidence for a little bit of magic stuff over here in the corner, but the vast majority of runic inscriptions is either uh, some guy died in Russia or um, Carl's a jerk or, um, you know, other... It's like pretty mundane stuff, right? That doesn't mean that there wasn't like a, a religious and magic tradition involved. Absolutely, there was. But it's just not, you know, that's strongly represented in the material. And it also makes sense, right? Um, because as Sewell as was just saying, um, you know, with these sea guilds, right, they are, you know, a lot of it is black magic. And a lot of the runic inscriptions have also been interpreted as black magic. In, in later periods. But it's not a Viking compass, I'm sorry. No. The, the vague reason. No. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, right, let's jump into some some questions. We we had a few, like I said, as soon as you mentioned runes, you get, you get plenty of questions about them. So if we go down down the list, um, so Don 
underscore Kuta asked, are there any specific runes uh, for good blacksmithing? No, but you can make one for uh, like a bind rune. You can make your own and imbue your own meaning. Because that's the, 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 the magic staves and the bind runes kind of work like a sort of like a placebo kind of thing. You imbue your own meaning into it and it works for you. So I have a personal magic stave that is for me and no one else knows what it means because it's mine and I don't care for anyone knowing what it is and it helps me. So it, so it can be deeply personal to make mm. these bind runes and, and magic staves. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point because you tend to see people get very much on the high horse when it comes to runes and there isn't much room for people to, to create their own things with it. But you say, why not create something that's personal to you? No, that's the, that's the thing, and um, you, you know, for for all the historical accuracy and 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 all that stuff, I think you know, in modern times, uh, people are free to do what they want to do with the runes. I mean, and uh, yeah, uh, as as you're saying, Sirobody, you know, it, it, create your own magical state. Like I have mine tattooed on my chest, <laughs> so like. Um, yeah, but there's one thing people are absolutely not allowed to do with the runes, and that is some Nazi stuff. Yes, agreed. Don't don't do yeah, Nazi stuff. Absolutely, that is forbidden. Yeah, just absolutely forbidden. Yeah, it's been it's been done too often, and it needs to be separated away from that now. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so we have um, Kylan Bl. Which I'm not sure if I pronounced that completely wrong. Um, would Vikings tattoo runes on themselves in the same way that people do today? Um, now, I, I would assume the answer is yes, because why not? <laughs> then we have to go so back to would... discussing whether or not Vikings tattooed at all. Um... Well, we're gonna <laughs> Sean's gonna come back on, um, and we can we can do that episode on tattooing like we were meant to do. That sounds like a good idea. So, I mean, we we have no way of answering that question, um, really. So, okay, so I think like, if we suppose that Vikings did tattoo, they probably did also once in a while tattoo runes on themselves. Um, if we go to other cultures in Europe uh, who were tattooing at the same time as the Viking Age, hint the English, they did um, tattoo crosses on themselves and, um, and also some, some writing here and there. I mean, wasn't it uh, Harold Godwinson who was identified at, after the Battle of Hastings by his tattoo on his chest that said for England or something like that? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if that's just like a, a sort of like a, a legend or something like that. But, um, but they, these were also like people. So they were probably tattooing dick pics and shit on yeah, <laughs> each yeah, other. Like, no, like frat parties. And yeah. <laughs> that's what I was just thinking. I was just thinking of like a... a a Saxon walking around with a with a runic tattoo that he went and he went and got thinking it meant one thing and it was like the it was like the Chinese symbol. He's you know he, yes. he, he's showing all his mates and really it just means like tosser or something. <laughs> Probably. So um Jacko Waters wants to know if there's any good books to to read and learn. I mean that's I think that's a great question because so many people learn what they know about runes from the internet and there's so much poor and there's probably more misinformation out there than there is truthful information yeah um 
I would say, you know, uh, steer away from, from the, um, uh, the typical, at least in the English language, uh, the typical sort of uh, rune magic books by, who, who are they, like Diana Paxson and Edward Thorson and all that stuff. Just, just don't read them because that's nonsense, most of it. There's a great book. Uh, it's a, there's a website just called IcelandicMagic.com, yes. and it's a it's just called Runes: The Icelandic Book of Futhark. It's a black book with runes on it. Uh, they they have they don't just have the Icelandic. They also have the Elder Futhark, the Younger Futhark, and the Icelandic variation. And this book is just academic. There's no opinions. There's not any. It's just the facts they know. That's a great book, and it's. Yeah, and I use that book all the time. It's very helpful. Is is that Teresa? Yeah, Teresa. Yeah. No, yeah, I can definitely recommend that you get a hold of that one for sort of like a, a better uh, grasp of the runes. Aside from that, my, uh, Michael Barnes, uh, his runes, it's just called runes, uh, is also a good like scholarly work, but it's not going to give you anything about like runic magic or anything like that. Um, for that, you want to go to uh, a John McKinnell and uh, Rudolf Simek's um, Runes, Magic, and Religion, which is a very scholarly book. Um, but those are the ones that I can recommend if you're sort of like, if you're interested in knowing the basic, you know, scholarly stuff about runes, and then also, you know, whatever we have available about like runic magic. Yeah, I mean, the one the one I started off with is the, the Martin Findel one. I don't know if that's any good or not but that's that's the first one i read yeah, yeah no that's 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 a that's a good start yeah i just want to caution against like you know uh getting like starting out with like these books uh by by so like these esoteric uh you know americans especially uh about runes because yeah that's that yeah yeah i i, I think once especially once you read misinformation it's always hard to then get rid of it so it's better to start off reading you know the truth so the the next one is from uh moose lady underscore p and that was how do you feel about how the runes are being represented in modern society so that's aimed at you see about it uh love it do whatever you want just you know don't do nazi stuff otherwise just yeah go nuts just don't be a jerk <laughs> yeah that's it, but I think, again, going back, you know, you get a lot of people who kind of get these opinions and very, I guess, p- very personal almost, and like, no, these are Viking, you can't do this with it. These, you know, And some people are like that, and they very try to be very restrictive with it. Oh, just shut up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you if you take on a persona about like, oh, I, I'm the cool kid in, uh, in my little community who... Who knows about Viking Age runes or something like that? Yeah, then then you're gonna go down that rabbit hole of of getting all personal about it. I I don't know, you know, like as a Scandinavian, I mean, we we grow up with runes in all kinds of contexts as part of our culture still today. Like I've seen plenty of runic graffiti in Iceland and in Denmark and in Norway and Sweden. Um, you know, it's just part of what we do. I learned runes when i was what in like fifth sixth grade or something like that and we're not too busy being all cool about oh <laughs> you have to write them this way 
But it's like saying, like, oh, you can't ride your mountain bike in the city because it's for the mountain. It's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you do what you want with your fucking mountain bike, and it's the same with runes. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a, a yeah. That's a great way to put it. Okay, the la- the last one I think we touched on a little bit. Um, anyway, and it says it's from Dylan Ray, and it's if runes are believed to hold a unique power, so I'm guessing he's relating to each one having its own meaning. Um, would writing a word with runes combine the quant- the qualities of them, even if the word is totally different? So I guess he's thinking maybe if you wrote the word tree, and then would each letter with its own meaning, would they still hold that, I guess? Uh, the short answer is no, but like I said, with doing what you want with the runes and, and putting your own meaning, then yes. But you like you'd have to be explaining to everyone all the time, like, yeah, tree also has right uh, in it, which means to ride. So it's actually a moving tree. But like, <laughs> so, so yeah, you can do that. But no, you know, it, it generally no, if it's just then then it turns into the alphabet, and you're just writing with it. Just just to expand on that, going back to what we said earlier, when when you do see them used in that kind of hieroglyphic fashion, where they mean, you know, they're used for the meaning, does it tend to be they're not written as a word it's just that kind of symbol idea does that make sense well yeah you could have like a a picture of a sheep and then the f rune fear on you know on top of the sheep and then you know okay this means sheep and then it's sort of hieroglyphic i mean uh, if the icelandic magical tradition is anything to go from right we have the uh galtara baker Right from the what seventeen eighteen hundreds, uh, isn't that when they're yeah, uh, yeah the latest ones or or the earliest ones at this point? They're of course they're they're older, right? But these are this is like the, the the surviving versions of them. And uh, one of the interesting things is uh, what is his name? Uh, uh, Skuki. Skuki. Is yeah. that his name? Yeah. Uh, this uh, this guy who wrote a sorcerer's book back in the nineteen fo- forties, uh, right? He, so this is obviously some guy who's have uh, he's he's sort of a bit of a genius, right? He's uh, he 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 knows about the Icelandic magical tradition, and then he invents his own systems and he goes off on a tangent. And it's a really interesting book to read. It's called The Sorcerer's Screed, and so what he has in all of his uh, descriptions, and that's uh, that's part of the tradition that has existed in Iceland and elsewhere too. Um, basically, he has like all of these prescriptions for how you make make a sigil magic, right? Yeah. And it is it is very detailed, like draw blood from your little toe, and you know all kinds of funky stuff. And I don't know if that guy ever did. All of those things. Some are... of them are quite ridiculous. Like capture a crow at three forty-five at midnight on the thirty thirtieth of December, but only <laughs> if the moon is full. It's like I I can't do that. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's like it's that's in twenty-four years, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but I actually I'm just bragging now. I actually have original copy. Uh, like one of the first print of that book in Icelandic, and they 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 only print it now in English. They don't do it in Icelandic anymore. And 
That's pretty and cool. And it's very cool. And that's just me bragging. Yeah. No, that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a worthy brag, I would say. Um, but no, but my, my point was simply that uh, uh, the, the, the general thought, whether or not this guy is messing with us or not, or the Icelandic tradition in and of itself is messing with us. The general thought is that you can imbue a, a, some kind of, say, bind rune, for instance, with some kind of magical act to it, right? So where you combine these uh, different um, meaningful elements as, as in action, right? Um, does that make sense? Like you, yeah. And and this also comes down to also the type of system that you work with, right? So a very old traditional system in Europe is like the the, the three, uh, sorry, the four bodily fluids and all that stuff, right? And if you're making bind runes, uh, it's good to take into consideration the meaning of runes. So like if you take ur or urur, which is the auction or or strength. And then tir, which is you know for bravery, and put them together. And then you're just like, oh, for strength and bravery. But if but you could put an entirely different meaning into it. But it's good to think about these things when making a bind rune that the runes have meanings, and you're sort of smushing the meaning of the runes together. Perfect. Right. Let's yeah. Let's wrap this one up. It's been it's been fun as always, Sigurdur. Yeah, it was excellent. Thank you. So do you want to let people know where they can find you, find your music, um, anything? Uh, so they can type in my name on Spotify or, or YouTube. It's just Sigurd Bode with the, with the little weird D with a line through it. So if you probably hold down the D on your phone, it's going to pop up. And on, on Spotify, there's actually three Sigurd Bode because the other two are from tags from, uh, like from when I did stuff with Danheim, but mine has a little blue check mark. So, you know, it's me. Uh, the others are just like. Uh, this song was also collaborated by Seal Boy. So Spotify makes an account in my name, even though it's you know it's just uh, for the tag. And yeah, you can type in my and and it's actually on like it's on Google Music and iTunes and Apple Music and all that. If you don't use Spotify, it's all over. Uh, and yeah, enjoy. <laughs> Perfect. And it's and it's just Sigurd on um, Instagram yeah. as well. It's the same, but I yeah, it's, uh, I mean on Instagram it's just the D because you can't use a weird characters yeah. on <laughs> and there's a link in my profile on instagram to my page so you can find it there too for anybody listening definitely go and go and check it out it's it's wonderful like i said i had the pleasure of seeing you do it live and it's uh it's beautiful what about matthias where can people find you where do you want you can uh yeah google my name matthias nordig you can find me on instagram um i you can also find me on the nordic mythology uh Facebook page, right, um, where we post, for instance, links to these uh, wonderful podcasts, and yeah, uh, you can find me on my Amazon author page. I just uh, published uh, this Tuesday, like Tuesday. Well, this will be aired later than that, but uh, June twenty third, I published a book on Norse mythology for children. So you can go find that on on Amazon. Is that going to be just the digital, or is the the hard copy coming out then? Yeah, yeah, well? you can you can get the hard copy uh, on Amazon now. So yeah, go do it, get it. Go do it, go get it. Yeah, and you can you can follow us at Horns of Odin um, on Instagram or on Facebook. So yeah, well, thank you very much, Sigurd. I'm sure we will do this again in the future when the uh, when the album comes out. Yeah, I'm I am always ready to talk about stuff <laughs> all the things <laughs> well, thank, 
Yeah, stuff and or things. That's it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much. And thank you. Thank you.